You're listening to Fighting Terror, a podcast that explores the approaches to fighting terror and extremism in the U.S., Europe, and worldwide. With Lucinda Creighton, Senior Europe Advisor to the Counter-Extremism Project and former Europe Minister. This podcast is brought to you by the Counter-Extremism Project, a research and advocacy group that combats the activities of terrorists and extremist groups globally. Hello and welcome. For today's podcast, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Sofia Moskalenko and Dr. Mia Bloom to our podcast. Uh, Dr. Sofia Moskalenko is a psychologist studying mass identity, intergroup conflict and conspiracy theories. She has written several books, including the award-winning Friction, How Conflict Radicalizes Them and Us. Dr. Mia Bloom is the International Security Fellow at New America and is a professor at Georgia State University. She has authored books on violent extremism, including Small Arms, Children and Terrorism. In today's episode of our mini-series on the 4OR Network, co-authors of Pastels and Pedophiles Inside the Mind of QAnon, Dr. Sofia Moskalenko and Dr. Mia Bloom will discuss how coping mechanisms can affect the rehabilitation and reintegration of extremist offenders in the context of creating socio-political polarization, conspiracy theories, and mis- and disinformation play in meaning making. Sofia and Mia, thank you both so much for joining the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you so, so much for having us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Um, and I suppose I'd like to kick off by maybe starting with conspiracy theories. Um, they're not new, obviously, but have arguably uh, perhaps become more powerful than ever due to the globalized digital media. And lately, I think, um, have probably been exacerbated during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, so perhaps, Sophia, I might start with you by asking you, um, if you could maybe briefly explain what conspiracy theories are as a bit, as a concept. So uh, conspiracy theories are narratives that are not based in fact. Uh, they are as old as humanity itself, probably. Um, it's, it's, it's a false narrative. Uh, you may call it also fake news. It has an element of intentional harm being secretly plotted and or caused um, by somebody, uh, and that somebody is typically the target of conspiracy theory. So, for example, you know, um, witch trials, Salem witch trials or European witch trials were based on basically a conspiracy theory that, you know, there's a cabal of witches who are secretly uh, stealing children and boiling them and eating them to give themselves magic powers. Um, and the conspiracy theories that uh, we are, um, that are much more current and we've probably all heard some of is called QAnon. And uh, that also features a secret cabal, uh, although instead of witches, um, the characters there are notable political figures like Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton and um, Hollywood celebrities and even the Pope. Uh, and they also, um, in the narrative, steal children and harm them and drink their blood. So there are uh, parallels between conspiracy theories of old and conspiracy theories of now. Um, a lot of a lot of main tropes of these narratives remain the same. Interesting. And um, I think particularly the um, 
the parallel between some of those old conspiracy theories, which we're all familiar with, and uh, and what's been emerging in more recent times. So uh, you both co-authored the book, which I referenced in the introduction, Pastels and Pedophiles Inside the Mind of QAnon, um, which gives a really good insight into, I suppose, the QAnon rabbit hole and exposes how the conspiracy theory has trapped countless uh, Americans. So perhaps... Mia, I could turn to you and ask you, firstly, what prompted you to start looking into this conspiracy theory in particular? What what were you hoping to discover through your research? Um, what had happened was um, the work that I'd done previously, uh, looking at ISIS on the encrypted platforms, around 2019 to 2020, I began to see shifts so that some of the same encrypted platforms like Telegram was being used by the far right. And because I had in some ways pivoted from ISIS to look at things like Proud Boys and the Boogaloo, I started seeing more and more about QAnon. Of course, you know, I knew about uh, Edgar Welch that had gone down to D.C. to uh, Comet Ping Pong Pizzeria and again was arrested. And luckily he just shot a door. Nothing happened. So we knew that Hillary Clinton and, and and George Soros were always at the center of some nefarious plot. But I think for, for me personally, it was seeing how it had moved from very uh, obscure parts of social media to the mainstream. And um, the NSF had asked for a briefing. I briefed the Pentagon, uh, I guess, uh, in late 2019. In 2020, uh, we, uh, Sophia and I, wrote uh, proposals together to conduct research, and so it, this was part and part parcel of seeing the trends on social media as it was gaining momentum, and some of the recruiting tactics and mechanisms looked so similar to ISIS, and so I think that's what I picked up on, but. Until we started to delve into it, it really did surprise me how much of this derived from, let's say, blood libels of the 12th and 13th century uh, against Jews. And so much of it resonated because a lot of what was in QAnon was familiar to me. But I think both of us took the position that, oh, you know, in 2019 and 2020, people began to say, does QAnon have the potential for terrorism? And because Sophia, you know, for more than three decades has been studying terrorism and I've been studying terrorism, we approached it as if it was a an emerging terrorist group. And I think the results we got were very different from what we expected going in. Okay. So interesting that you were absor- you were literally observing this trend and seeing it um, emerge on platforms like Telegram uh, right before your eyes almost. Um, were there aspects of what you saw that shocked you or surprised you in terms of what you were seeing at that time? Well, eventually it was very surprising because so much of QAnon is anti-Semitic. And when we discovered uh, something like 40 different Hebrew language channels, it was very strange. And so part of the most surprising part was, one, um, the role played by women, which echoed a lot of the research I had done uh, since 2005 on women and terrorism. But the other thing was that communities uh, whose tropes were part of the lore of QAnon were supporting it. So a lot of it was very surprising. And 
what we said in the book was that in all likelihood, support for QAnon would have remained relatively flat from October 2017 on, except for the pandemic. The pandemic really supercharged this conspiracy theory because people were online more, they were stuck at home, they were anxious. And so this really created the perfect storm for Mm -hmm. people to start, quote unquote, doing their own research and falling down that proverbial rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, literally people stuck at home, I guess, you know, going online and, and really getting sucked in. And that maybe is a good segue back to you, Sophia, in terms of uh, maybe trying to understand a bit of a bit more of the psychology of all of this of the, uh, of conspiracy theories uh, in general. Uh, I suppose one question is how common is it for people to to get sucked in to believe all or some parts or elements of these conspiracy theories, and maybe what factors have you identified that play a part in that? Um, yeah, it's an interesting question, and I think both. Uh, Mia's and my answers uh, give you a little bit of a glimpse into an answer, meaning, so these conspiracy theories, they kind of exist uh, in the public consciousness in in, in this uh, realm of public narratives for centuries, right? And it's only occasionally that they become huge uh, uh, lightning rod for for people to to congregate against and believe in and not only believe in but actually uh, plot and carry out some some actions around them and so the question is then um you know what are those conditions on the ground that can lead to all of a sudden these always existing conspiracy theories becoming so much more attractive. And Mia already mentioned the enormous importance of the pandemic. So to break it down a little bit more into, you know, the the critical elements, we've been isolated for a long time. Um, And we know from psychology research that loneliness and isolation in the lab, if we if we make people feel lonely and or isolated, um, they are becoming more open to conspiratorial content and they are more likely to believe it when presented with it. And so loneliness and isolation of the COVID pandemic was definitely a huge factor. Um, And during the pandemic, while we were isolated, the for many people the only kind of window into the world became through the internet through their computers um and this is documented by by other researchers quite well that the algorithms on the most popular media sites kind of pushed conspiratorial content to the top of people's scroll because they wanted to maximize engagement and this content is very emotional listening and so people tend to you know comment or stay with it or you know click on it and and so on and so forth and so the algorithms just promoted it so bringing this content to more people who were in this vulnerable lonely state in addition to feeling lonely during the pandemic we were feeling really anxious speaking for myself but i think that's also documented um you know how this was going to play out what the world was going to look like when this was going to be over when this was going to be over was the economy ever going to recover were our jobs going to still be there and so on um a lot of anxieties a lot of tensions in households that had children and who couldn't go to school 
a lot of depression and so on. And again, we have research from before the pandemic that showed that, you know, feelings of anxiety, uncertainty, lack of control, um, they all tend to amplify the likelihood that people will engage with and believe conspiratorial content. And so as Mia said, this was kind of a perfect storm um, of, of background conditions that made people a lot more open and a lot more willing to entertain and think about conspiratorial narratives. Not all people. Some people were more vulnerable than others, but that's another story. But we yeah. also talked about we also talked about in the book the role that Russia played in amplifying it. So we have both Russia and China and other adversaries of the United States who use this. So so they saw this as an opening in order to undermine the institutions of the United States and, and our belief and our trust in democracy and elections. And so it wasn't just the pandemic, but it was that amplified and facilitated by malign actors that are using disinformation and continue to use disinformation till today. Mm, absolutely. Um, it really was uh, a perfect storm in, in, in the, the way you've described it. Um, is the flip side of that then that if people are, I mean, that, that society or human contact will maybe uh, diffuse some of these thoughts or conspiracies um, in other words, you know, sort of peer pressure and societal norms in terms of what's acceptable or what's not acceptable to articulate. Is that a kind of an antidote to this type of phenomenon or is it more that when people are out in the world, they've lost time? Uh, I wish I could know the future. I could make a lot of money. <laughs> you know? yeah. um, certainly, you know, we want to hope that it will um as Mia mentioned again, you know, there are a lot of nefarious actors who um, have vested interests in promoting these kinds of stories and not just abroad, abroad. There are, you know, some members of our newly elected Congress who are um, elected on the heels of QAnon becoming this mass phenomenon. And because they supported this content, they were able to get the votes. And so, um, you know, we have to worry not just about the conditions that precipitated the rise of QAnon dissipating, but we also now have to worry about people who've capitalized on this phenomenon and, you know, are not likely to just, you know, give up this very lucrative opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, I think we have to worry about the fact that the world has changed with the pandemic um, and loneliness was already an issue before that. There are studies that demonstrated that, you know, an average American adult male has zero close friends. And 30 years ago, an average adult male in the U.S. had about two close friends. So loneliness was already a big issue, um, at least in the U.S., which is what I know most about. Um, but after the pandemic, with the virtual reality, you know, and us being able to do the interview virtually, for example, this was not the norm before. And now it is. And as great as these opportunities to have virtual contact are, and, you know, I'm benefiting from it right now, um, they do not substitute human contact. And we also have studies showing that, that, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of a fake um, 
fake perception of social connection that actually leads to greater loneliness. The more people engage on social media, the more lonely they feel as a result. It's kind of like drugs of addiction in that sense. You you want to feel happy, you take opioids, but you end up feeling more miserable in the end. And I don't think that we're even starting to think about um, what this new world means for our psychological functioning, for us, for our social functioning, and as a result, for our political existence as a society. Mm. These are big existential questions in a sense. Um, you, both of you, um, along with Humpal, who, who we've already interviewed in this podcast series, you, you wrote uh, about the the, the additional cost of conspiracy beliefs. And um, I think in the case of QAnon, you identified emotional, social, political cost to, to, to human beings um, uh, through their involvement. Now, you've sort of alluded to that, but um, maybe could you give a, a, a sort of a, a sense of what, what that means uh, for the individuals and how it impacts them um, and wider society then? Mia, maybe you might like to take that oh, one. Oh, sure, absolutely. Although just, just to be very clear, Sophia is the first author on that piece. Um, I think that one of the things we've noticed is that belief in QAnon and conspiracy theories is not just, you know, a benign state of being that uh, people, for example, um, in the 1960s, there were a lot of people who believed that John F. Kennedy was assassinated and that this was covered up. Uh, lots of other people, since uh, Lady Diana Spencer was uh, died died in a car accident, have also come up with conspiracy theories surrounding her death. And in fact, even her sons are still unclear about the circumstances. And so, as a result of this, you know, it's not a benign. Oh, I have some crazy belief, and it's personal because of the way the QAnon has been structured. It has been amplified by adversaries. It has been monetized by these social influencers. But it also has become, in many ways, of a mass movement, and we see it reflected as, as Dr. Moskalenko said, in the Republican Party. In you know. It's it's gone to the right and more extreme of previously what we called the Tea Party in the United States. And we saw, for example, in the last few weeks, how a handful of these QAnon supporters were able to prevent the election of the Speaker of the House. So it has reverberations in ways that the conspiracy theories of the past did not have. And in terms of the, the deleterious effects, you know, as I'm on the encrypted platforms, uh, obviously under an assumed name, looking at what the QAnon folks are looking at, it is traumatizing content so that already people have been injured in some way to gravitate towards the conspiracy theory. As they are consuming this material, they are becoming further impacted and it's further triggering. And then, of course, people's reactions around them is going to exacerbate that state of loneliness that uh, Sophia mentioned. So, for example, if you have a, a relative who is spouting off about QAnon, in all likelihood, you stop inviting them around. And, and so at the very most basic personal level, 
level. If people weren't isolated already because of the pandemic, they were becoming further isolated in these echo chambers by their beliefs. And so, you know, Sophia has very useful uh, chapter talking about ways of helping your relatives out. But certainly we're seeing how it's impacting the political landscape, not just in the United States with the Republicans. We saw an attempted and failed coup in Germany in December, as well as January, what happened in Brazil by QAnon supporters of Bolsonaro. So it's not just isolated in the United States or North America, it has spread all over the world and continues to be a global phenomenon. It's so true. And uh, I think we're, we're, you've, you've given some good examples there um, uh, in different countries. Sophia, I might ask you just um, further to that uh, article which, uh, which you co-authored. Um, there was a, uh, an internet study or survey cited um, with um, a, a few hundred US participants. And I was really struck by the, the statistic or the fact that 80% of those surveyed um, reported having a family member or friend following QAnon. I mean, that's incredibly high. Um, yeah, absolutely. We were, we're also not expecting that at all. In fact, going into that study, we thought we would have to work really hard to find relatives and friends of QAnon followers. And I have uh, made contact with special support groups on Facebook to get those people that I would then, you know, compare with what I thought was going to be the majority of people who don't know anybody. And so when we, you know, got this incredible percentage, you know, four out of five people in our sample knew somebody who was QAnon. And what's more, out of those who did, vast majority, something 64%, it was their family member. So it wasn't somebody they know from walking the dog in the neighborhood. It wasn't somebody they befriended on Facebook. It was somebody that they've known pretty much their whole life. And suddenly this person has, they, you know, we've asked them and their perceptions was that this person became a stranger that they didn't understand. They, um, you know, felt angry about and, and anxious about. And very often these relationships soured, as Mia said, as a result, um, causing all kinds of reverberations. So the effects of QAnon are not limited to those who believe the stories. They are absolutely spreading beyond them to their family circles and French and friendships. And we probably all know somebody. Um, we're talking about Americans again, because that's where my data come from. Um, but yeah, here for sure, we probably know somebody who is a QAnon believer. And that probably has some sort of a psychological effect on us. One of these effects um, in a study we just submitted, um, also work on this grant, is that people who are not QAnon followers tend to perceive QAnon as a lot more dangerous than it actually is. So we surveyed QAnon followers and we asked them how likely would they be to carry out all of these illegal or violent actions on behalf of their goals or beliefs or whatever. And we compared that with the perception of, of people who are not QAnon. And we followed that the, the, the perceptions were a lot more troubling than the reality. And that, of course, has 
effects on all kinds of, you know, actions and policies and um, the way we function as a society. If you believe that, that there are monsters under your bed, um, you know, you're going to behave differently than when you think that everything is okay. This is a phenomenon, I think, in, in Europe as well. Um, and actually, it leads me on to my my next question, um, which is, you know, I suppose around how or if uh, these types of conspiracy theories and beliefs um, sort of catalyze into extremist action or violence. Um, and I think that is a, a, a maybe a burning question um, in the US and and in Europe as well and beyond. Um, you know, how how does how does this materialize um, and does it tend to, or is there a pattern in terms of um, these believers becoming violent? And one of the things that we saw was um, there were a series of surveys that were done uh, either by American Enterprises Institute, which is a conservative think tank in D.C., uh, republished in the Washington Post, as well as the Institute for the Study of Religion. So there have been a number of surveys. And uh, if the surveys uh, are representative samples, we're looking at the potential of 30 million American adults that believe in some level of QAnon, but the, the more extreme parts that there is a cabal of Democratic elites, Hollywood celebrities, and even the royal family in the UK uh, that are trafficking in children, raping them and drinking their blood. So in other words, you know, the, the more extreme part of it, not you know that there's disinformation out there or that the government is lying to you. We're talking about sort of the, the more extreme elements. And of course, one of the things that uh, they've, they observed in their surveys is that it's uh, overwhelmingly Republican, but that certain religions like the evangelical religion uh, have really glommed onto QAnon and as much as a third of evangelicals believe in it. And so if we're seeing a lot of people who subscribe to uh, the most insane parts of the theory, uh, we're not seeing 30 million future terrorists. We're not seeing 30 million acts. And in fact, from 2018 to 2020, in other words, prior to January 6th, the vast majority of the violence that was perpetrated, you know, accepting a, a threat to the Hoover Dam and the a killing of a mafioso, a lot of it was personal violence. It was women who had lost custody, kid, kidnapping their children, or, you know, someone running his brother through with a sword because he was convinced that the brother was a lizard person. So I think part of the problem is that there have been, at least from my perspective, I don't want to speak for Sophie on this, but there have been some, uh, what we used to call them the terrorism entrepreneurs, who saw this as an opportunity to amplify the threat and sort of cry that, oh yes, QAnon is the next ISIS. And I think part of what we did with the book was we brought the, the temperature down to say, calm down a bit. It's it's not really 30 million potential terrorists in the United States. It's not the mother in Anaheim holding a sign about child trafficking. Now, I think the important part, and, and again, um, Sophia was the one that published on this, was to look at the intersectionality of QAnon beliefs and other extremist beliefs. So the people, you know, assume incorrectly because you look at January 6th and you see all these people wearing QAnon branded uh, t-shirts or sweatshirts and uh, hats to carrying a sign. You see the, the, the chap there with the, 
the the fur and and the Viking hat, Jacob Chansley, and the painted you know his the tattooed chest, painted face, and I think people assume the January sixth was a QAnon event. And what we discovered is the January 6th was certainly amplified in QAnon networks and circles and that QAnon recruited, especially the women, recruited people to go to the Capitol on January 6th. And they were very easy to spot. It's like a Where's Waldo? You can find the Q in the picture. But that the people who were most dangerous were people who had other right-wing extremist ideologies, the Proud Boys or the Neo-Nazis or the Boogaloo or people who were part of militias. So I think it's most important when we're looking at um, the differences between radical thought and radical action, which, of course, you know, Sophia literally wrote the book on that. Um, we have to take into account that many, many, in fact, the majority of people who believe in QAnon are never going to act on it. But if they're also subscribing to other violent ideologies, then then that is really a, a dangerous mix. Mm-hmm. If I may, if I may yeah, add to that, which, which I thought was a great point. Um, as Mia said, they're, they're entrepreneurs on the side of security and, and research, but they're also entrepreneurs on the side of political violence. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as, you know, predicting violence from, you know, QAnon beliefs, um, I think other things might be better predictors than the beliefs themselves. In fact, uh, you know, there are these people who will go from one radical group to another until they find the one that will give them opportunities to act on whatever grievances they have or, you know, personal defects or whatever. Um, and QAnon is probably not the best group for these people. You know, it's all talk, you know. In fact, everything we know about psychology of terrorism um is counter to this intuition that we as humans have that what a person believes is gonna be predictive of what they do you know it's it's kind of like our naive psychology assumption that we can predict a person's behavior from their thoughts but the reality of psychology and case studies and and decades of research show that most of the time our beliefs go absolutely nowhere. You know, we believe in you know in, in countering climate change, but if if somebody follows us all day long, day after day, and traces our recycling behavior and driving and choices about you know what dishes to eat from and so on and so forth, it turns out that that belief is not terribly predictive about our action. Um, and it's the same way with radical beliefs. You know, n- over ninety nine point nine percent of people who hold them will never act on them. And that's not just for QAnon. That's for jihadi radical beliefs as well. Um, So we need to be looking at something else. And it's harder to look for something else because, of course, you know, radical beliefs are right there. They stand out. They, you know, they make us want to do something about it. Um, But we're likely to do more damage than good if we're persecuting people on on their beliefs, you know? And, and in fact, that's something that's probably happened after 9-11 when there was so much action against Muslims, both, both from people on the ground, you know, attacking Muslims in the street and, and mosques and so on, and from our security services that were heavily invested in surveying mosques and, you know, driving wedges into the Muslim community in the United States. And, and that became a rallying cry for ISIS recruitment. So it was actually counterproductive. 
Um, and I think it's also an interesting question, um, you know, why we're so invested in persecuting radical beliefs. You know, and I, it, when we have these radical groups, like Mia mentioned, these militia groups that are responsible for 75% of all lethal uh political crime in the United States since 9-11. Three quarters of all lethal incidents of political nature in the U.S. were carried out by radical militia groups, not by, you know, jihadis and not by these radical beliefs groups. And yet our public interest and our security's interest keeps coming back to, you know, QAnon and incels and so on. And I think there's something to be said about, you know, how they're more convenient villains um, you know, for us to imagine and persecute. Um, and they're, you know, maybe more dangerous, but, um, you know, villains who look like the guy next door, you know, this, this white guy who's nice and might even help you shovel snow, but on the weekends, he's uh, running around in the woods with, with an AK practicing, you know, shooting targets that have, you know, the Star of David on them. Um, something that's happening at some places. So it's, it's you know, something that, again, we as a society should be thinking about more than we yeah. do. Yeah. Um, and I suppose um, perhaps it's the case that, you know, policymakers are overly focusing on some of these, um, these uh, extremist beliefs and groups that are associated with them like QAnon rather than um, where, the, where the more imminent security threat arises. Actually, in, in, in fairness, the policymakers, from what we've observed, it's kind of the opposite. The, the policymakers are like, you know, it's like that. Don't talk about the war. It was fine with foreign terrorist organizations uh, to coalesce around fighting jihadi and ISIS and before that Al Qaeda. It's it's fine if it's a foreign terrorist group, but because of the nature of it being domestic and it being so impregnated in the American uh, political system, uh, we're seeing, in fact, a backlash the opposite. Uh, that uh, 50% of the political parties in the United States, in other words, the Republicans, they don't want to focus on it. So it's mm-hmm. it's really not coming from the politicians. The politicians are the ones that are amplifying it. And then we're seeing these echo chambers on Fox News. So I think for, from my perspective, um, the exaggeration of the threat isn't coming from the government or it's not coming from um, uh let's say, uh, the bureaucracy, the military, uh, the, the uh, in- intelligence community. But, you know, for example, um, Moonshots, CVE, or the Sufan group uh, have, have both looked at groups that uh, Sophia and I examine, like incels, like QAnon, and there is this amplification of the violence. And, and, and for me, it can only mean that there's, there's a reason why you're trying to convince us that a bunch of people who have mental illness, who are more dangerous to themselves than to others, are the future of terrorism. But we, we have we have met with some resistance, even from people attacking the funding agencies for funding this research, that they, they claim it's partisan or it's politicized, that we have an agenda. But uh, it's, it's not the same thing. I never thought I would see in the United States where you had people advocating for domestic terrorism. But their issue is that if they look like us, like Sophia says, the neighbor next door who shovels your snow, but then, you know, runs around in a Confederate outfit on the weekend, then you really are 
dealing with a, a problem in the United States, unlike the UK or Canada, we, we have very strong freedom of speech, freedom of association, um, all of these freedoms that are enshrined in the Constitution. And so when we're looking at domestic terrorists that are not jihadis, it really is a challenge uh, for the research uh, and the researchers. Thank you. Can I, can I um, maybe just turn to to the prison population and offenders? And obviously that's a, a focus uh, in the 4-Hour Network um, work. And I'd be interested to hear your thoughts in terms of how this um, rise in conspiracy theories, um, how it is impacting or will impact on extremist defenders, whether it's um, creating additional challenges um, and both in the prison system, but also when it comes to uh, the reintegration of um, extremist offenders. Have you seen any any evidence of that or any sort of downstream impacts? I spoke with the Department of Justice the other day. I was, um, I guess this would have been uh, on on Tuesday. And because of the time lag, the QAnon cases are just coming up now. Uh, We have a handful of well-known QAnon supporters. Uh, For example, this Jacob Chansley, who's known as the QAnon shaman. Uh, Part of the problem has been that the uh, people associated and, and arrested as a result of January 6th, it's in the D.C. court system, which is a very small um, superior court compared to if it was in no state, because D.C. is not a state. And they're just coming up now. What we're seeing is that some of the people, when they go to prison, realize eventually that they've been sold a bill of goods. And so some people are abandoning in the face of uh, of reality. Um and, and not having access to this content because they're no longer on the echo chambers. Uh, they are moving away from QAnon, although they've already perpetrated the crimes. But what we are seeing is that if there are some of the influencers who are being sued or being arrested or charged, uh, the, the people who have been running this tend to backpedal. So there have been a number of sort of well-known QAnon advocates who have moved away from their positions. Nevertheless, at the same time, they're still raising money through these QAnon events. They have these big conferences, these big meetings that they monetize and they charge three and four hundred dollars for tickets. And uh, they're, you know, these anything that's called, you know, sort of patriot uh, sort of has the word patriot in it. Or, or you, they have buzzwords, you know, the storm, uh, things from the QAnon ideology. But yeah, it was it was very interesting seeing a number of people who were pushing QAnon when they are on the stand um, being asked either by uh, a district attorney or by a judge their views. They tend to soften their view. They, they cannot in a court of law lie. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do think that in the justice uh, system, we are seeing some flattening of enthusiasm. But of course, uh, with the far right, if there's an intersectionality of someone who believes in Patriot Front, Proud Boys, KKK, and QAnon, then no, the prison system just becomes another echo chamber because there are right-wing extremists in the prison. And as you know, people know, the, as soon as you get arrested, if you're in the prison, you have to choose one group. And if you're not African-American, that group is out. If you're not a Muslim, that group is out. What's left are the neo-Nazis. Mm. Um 
Interesting. Maybe maybe I'm conscious uh, of, of our of our uh, fast diminishing time. Um, so um, maybe if a, a wrap up question, uh, starting with you, Sophia, um, is just um, on that vein. Um, are there particular recommendations that you would make um, to policymakers, to practitioners working in this area of um, tackling recidivism, uh, reintegration around handling um, people who perhaps have been radicalized or have who have gone down this rabbit hole in terms of conspiracy theories like QAnon? Um, are there particular practices that that you would recommend um, to try to manage that? Um, Yeah, and there is a a chapter in the book that details those for those listeners who might want to get more depth on this answer. Um, But uh, along the lines that I've described uh, of the causes of this interest in QAnon, um, you know, there's there's a lot that can be done in addressing loneliness and alienation that our current way of life kind of fosters, you know, this speed of everything and you need to be on 24-7 and there's always somewhere to go and perform, you know, to some standards. And we've kind of lost our way as as human beings and as a community. Um, and I think it would do a lot of good, not just for QAnon followers, but for all of us, if there were more opportunities for us to meet face to face, to just, you know, make contact and conversation with strangers. Um, and our policymakers have a lot of sway with that. But so do we, you know, if, if we are aware of, of this important niche that is not filled by our existing infrastructure, then, you know, maybe we can make an effort to, you know, go to Starbucks or make conversation with a stranger who sits next to you on the plane. Media is fantastic for that. (laughs) It's something I should work on. Um, But yeah, we have research that shows that, you know, people love meeting strangers and having actually deep conversations with them. Um, So it's good for everybody. I love these win-win-win, you know, scenarios. Um, So addressing loneliness and alienation is one. Another one is, of course, as a psychologist, I can't not mention the role of mental illness in our society as a whole and specifically among people who've fallen prey to this disinformation, which is magnitudes greater than it is for all of us. And and again, for all of us during COVID pandemic, the rates of self-reported depression or anxiety went up four times relative to before. So from one in 10 people reporting it before the pandemic to four in 10 people reporting it during the pandemic. So we've, we all can do with some, you know, more attention to our psychological needs um, and especially people who are at risk for radicalization or have radicalized. That's something that we as policymakers or or, uh, people who inform policy should be emphasizing. And of course, for people who come out of prison environments, um, both of those, alienation and loneliness um, and rejection of a society, which is sometimes very institutional, it's not personal, but it doesn't matter because it still feels horrible. Um, And mental health needs are in dire need of addressing and would do like just huge, uh, that would make a huge difference for ensuring their smoother reintegration and better functioning as members of the society. Mm-hmm. 
that's very practical. Um, um, Mia, do, do you have uh, any thoughts on this in terms of recommendations for the policymakers who will be dealing with this population? The population in prison or the population in general? The, the prison population and uh, as they reintegrate into society. So I, uh, with Honkal and uh, a number of other people associated with the podcast, attended the TVTP meeting in Washington, D.C. a few months ago. And one of the things I noticed is that um, there isn't that nuanced distinction between involvement, like ideas and action and involvement and sort of what um, de-radicalization means. I think the focus of uh, as we had for jihadis, instead of de-radicalization, since you can't look into people's hearts and minds, and that is much more difficult to change, is the emphasis on demobilization. And I think that's that was the sweet spot, that as long as people aren't doing something violent and dangerous. And I think with QAnon beliefs, it's, it's also because so much of it is hearts and minds, it's addressing sort of the way that they engage. So, for example... Uh, we're all against child trafficking. Nobody, no, nobody's excited about pedophilia. So as a result, how do you channel that feeling of outrage? Can it be channeled into pro-social behaviors rather than anti-social behaviors? Um, and as far as recidivism, what we've seen is when you don't address the underlying issues, people who are removed from QAnon content because they're arrested, they're not allowed to access the internet, the moment that they are allowed to access the internet, they, they fall right back down. So there needs to be some sort of proactive way of channeling the outrage, having them be um, useful members of society and, and avoid the recidivism. But the recidivism of belief and the recidivism of action are going to be equally different as they are um, in, in Dr. Moskalenko and Dr. Macaulay's uh, many, many years of research. So I think that um, um, the biggest thing that can be done by the policymakers is to is to disavow it. And I don't see that happening anytime soon because QAnon is considered such an important base for the Republican Party. We saw, for example, in the lead up to the 2022 midterms, how President Trump, who had held them at bay, you know, with um, um, plausible deniability, embraced QAnon, started wearing a Q pin on his lapel, started referring to himself as Q+. I think if that's the case, and in all likelihood, Donald Trump will be the Republican candidate in 2024. Instead of a decline of QAnon, we're going to see an uptick and that the more people are aroused by this idea, you have to do something, you have to do something now, which, by the way, was similar to the jihadis. It went from being an obligation that was general to the community to your individual personal obligation to do something. We will actually see in the future more crimes and more violence than less unless the you know people take principled positions and disavow QAnon and not use them as useful idiots in the political sphere. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, I think uh, we have a lot to chew on there. So um, thank you both so much for sharing your knowledge uh, and expertise. It's been a, a really a useful discussion uh, and I hope I'm sure our listeners will, will enjoy it too. So uh, I'd like to thank you both, Dr. Sophia Moskalenko and Dr. Mia Bloom. Uh, really grateful to you for joining the podcast today and uh, look forward to seeing and reading more of your research as, as we go forward. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed our discussion. Please don't forget to like, comment on and share this episode. 
You can find out more about Fighting Terror and the Counter Extremism Project on Twitter using our handle at Fight Extremism and on the homepage of our website.